it's because you know in Indian culture the elderly are massively revered so I've never had a fear of aging um, and also because we believe in reincarnation so I don't I don't believe that that's the end anyway so so you're an MIT neuroscientist MD and you believe in reincarnation but you're skeptical of the quantum realms <laughs> you know what you're right I'm a conflict and I'm okay with that <laughs> By the way, none of that was criticism. Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that light from outside your brain can turn nerve cells on inside your brain. Well, at least if you have some cool gear anyway. Scientists have discovered that light pulses from outside a monkey's brain can activate nerve cells very deep inside the brain, and that external control might someday help us treat brain diseases like epilepsy, according to reports. Why do they always think about treating epilepsy, according to reports? Now, full disclosure, my mom started having epileptic seizures when she was carrying me, and I grew up with a mom who has epilepsy, so I'm all about treating epilepsy. But there's a lot more of us who don't have epilepsy, and if we could use that light to do even cooler stuff to our brains, like let us levitate or be Professor X, wouldn't that be cool too? Okay, sorry. That wasn't part of my cool fact of the day, but I just wanted to let you guys know about this thing called optogenetics, which is when we actually can control specific nerve cells with light. But you kind of have to put thin optical fibers inside the brain, which is a bad thing. Sorry, Elon Musk, uh, Neuralink, because putting stuff inside your brain causes infections, inflammation, and tissue damage, at least according to MIT, and I tend to believe those guys because they're pretty smart. However, these researchers now have new light-responsive molecules called, get this, soul, that detects extra dim light. So they can inject soul into a monkey brain, and yes, we're all basically monkeys anyway, but we shave better. And researchers shined blue light through a hole in the skull and the soul-containing nerve cells, which were as deep as almost six millimeters in the brain, became active, and orange light stopped the activity. Okay, how cool is that? So maybe someday you can actually inject soul into your brain, shine a light on your head, and you'll become enlightened. That is a cool fact of the day to end all cool facts of the day. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body. Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. 
The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Now, if that was just too freaky for you, you might just want to check out Superhuman, my brand new book. It is my only book that's ever been on the New York Times list for two weeks back to back, which is a huge honor as an author. Thank you for ordering it, because if you're listening to this, the odds are high that you have. And if you're listening to this going, I really should order it, we'll do it now. Because if you're going to spend an hour of your time on this episode of the show, you're going to spend four or five hours reading the book, and you're going to get years of research and knowledge together. So the ROI for you to just like turn off this episode and start reading or listening to the audiobook, which I recorded myself with my shirt off. I will have you know. Yes, it's on Instagram. Uh, that was because my shirt was too loud. Uh, anyway, you guys should check it out. Superhuman. Now, on to today's guest. Today's guest has, I do believe, the most perfect English accent of any guest who's ever been on the show. And this is because in studying to become a neuroscientist, medical doctor, leadership coach, best-selling author, and pretty much neuroscientist badass, apparently you also develop this kind of an accent. Um, I'm talking about Dr. Tara Swart. She's a senior lecturer at MIT Sloan School of Management, where she runs the Neuroscience for Leadership and Applied Neuroscience programs, and is an executive advisor to some of the world's most respected leaders in media and business. So this is the cutting edge stuff. What do our brains actually do that make us lead? And I'm super interested in this interview today. Tara, welcome to the show. Dave, I think that might be just the coolest but strangest intro that I've ever had. <laughs> All right. I mean, I just had so many thoughts going through my brain. Like, yeah, who doesn't want more soul in their brain? Obviously, <laughs> like instant enlightenment. <laughs> um and yeah, yesterday I spoke at a conference for 1,200 women, and I was called a brainy boss babe, but I think you beat that with your neuroscientist badass. <laughs> a brainy boss babe is pretty good. I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah. It, it's really fascinating. I, I went to Wharton, uh, which you know definitely isn't MIT, uh, and this was a while back, early 2000s. And we were doing a statistical analysis class, and they said, we need a data source. And I said, guys, I have my own EEG. Let's do this thing, which today we would call neuromarketing. I said, we can put EEGs on each other, and we can get data and just see if the data is statistically valid when we look at different logos. How fun would that be? And they all looked at me like I was crazy and said, let's do something boring. I forgot what we did because it was irrelevant. But I do remember that if we had done that, we probably could have started some expensive consulting firm and all become billionaires which is why you go to Wharton anyway, right? So you actually went out and you do that kind of stuff. You actually measure people's brains during leadership, right? I, I, I do. I, um, I use various um, sorts of gadgets to do actual measurement, but I still say that your own brain, and you know, I am talking about mine when I say this, but anyone's brain is still the most sophisticated tool for understanding and measuring someone else's brain. And to me, that's actually true leadership. If you use all of your integrated brain power to understand people, to motivate them, to um, you know, get stuff done, then 
that to me, you know, until we are implanting stuff into our brains, until we become that human AI hybrid that I think we will, up until that point, our brain is this amazing, sophisticated piece of machinery that we can get a lot more out of than we have done so far and, and use that for leadership. We don't, I like to add in the gadgets, but I don't believe that we necessarily need to. So we don't need the gadgets, but as a, a researcher, you're using them to measure it, but it, it's more about instrumenting what's already there, not augmenting it. Um, well, it's actually, it's actually definitely both. So I think sometimes giving people the hard data, either from a bigger research study or from their own brain, um, can just raise their awareness of some realities that they may not be that conscious of. Um, and then using that information, either the hard data or the metacognition, the self-understanding, the raised awareness, um, you use that to augment the power of the brain, 100%. Okay, so using the training and the knowledge, but you're not talking about you know, the, the, someone giving a talk on stage, monitoring the brainwaves of their audience to see if it's getting in. No, no, I'm, I'm much more about using larger scale rigorous studies to understand sort of norms and then apply that to individual people. So I'll either be coaching a, you know, a senior leader and there'll be an issue and I'll go to the rigorous research to try to find a solution for it. Um, or I'll be you know, keeping an eye on all the latest sort of sophisticated scanning technology research. And I'll put that information out there you know, for things that I think are of general interest and importance to, to leaders. But when I say leader, I literally mean that we're all leading our own life, leading our family, leading our communities, and also obviously our teams and our businesses and you know whatever we're doing in society. So I, th I really do think it applies to everyone. What is the most unlikely thing that you've discovered using neuroscience for leadership? The thing that you're like, I can't believe that that's real. Oh my God, that's a brilliant question. Um, I would say the latest thing I'm really interested in is the three-way transmission of information between the limbic part of the brain, which is the intuitive part of the brain, the gut neurons, and the gut microbiome. So we've known for quite a while now that there's a neuronal connection between the gut and the brain. But if you add in this third element, that the gut bacteria are separately signaling to the gut neurons and to the brain itself through cytokine transmission, which is chemical messages that are sent through the blood, then it just opens up this amazing area of understanding that if you physically look after the bacteria in your gut through what you eat, through supplementation, through reduction of stress, alcohol, antibiotic use, you can actually gain greater clarity into your own intuition, which is the wisdom and experience that you've laid down in your neurons over your whole lifetime. But obviously, you can't remember everything you've experienced in your life. So you know, I'm very big on the brain body connection, but that to me was pretty mind blowing. And, you know, the fact that it's the quality and diversity of the bacteria in your gut, which I never even really thought was actually part of me. And there is a debate about that. Like, is it part of you or are certain cravings and addictions caused by these gut bacteria trying to get what they need to survive? I've come to believe that each bacteria has its own little bacterial consciousness. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I, I'm getting there with my research as well. So basically, these bacteria, like any you know living thing, they want to survive. They're able to transform themselves, if necessary, into parasites or viruses for their own survival. And they're using us as avatars to get whatever nutrition or resource they need to 
be able to survive, to multiply, to transform. Um, and so I think the way that that really helps leaders is from the sort of the most pathological angle, it's if you've got an addiction or a terrible craving, understanding that it could be the bacteria on your, in your gut that's causing that, not you. And I think that level of separation helps people to step back and think, am I going to let a bacteria tell me that I should drink more alcohol than is good for me tonight? Does that also mean that each cell in your body has its own little dumb cell consciousness? I mean, I know that you're very interested in mitochondria, for example, in terms of like, you know, the energy that it... Yeah, or, or it could just be like a liver cell or a neuron. Like it, it also is a little cell that that's alive and would live by itself in a Petri dish. Yeah, and they do paracrine signaling, which is that they signal to the cells next to them. And we know that cells have the capacity, you know, from stem cell to become something totally different to... So, you know, a liver cell could have become a neuron. Um, once they're matured at the moment, we don't see that much ability to transform but they definitely signal to the cells next to them and things like stress massively affect what signaling these cells are you know doing to each other um and we know that things like stress and alcohol can cause damage to certain types of cells more than others so liver and brain for example um yeah i mean it's a it's a growing field that i mean if you'd asked me this question a couple of years ago i would have said epigenetics but now, oh, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, which all my work is based on epigenetics. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's gone from being quite a, a an emerging field to being, a, you know, quite a lot more established. I think the next step is this psychoneuroendocrinology field, which includes yeah. the gut microbiome. I just read uh, uh, some large, thick textbook on that that made me really happy on my Kindle because it was thin. Um, your book, though, The Source, is really interesting because you're sort of a walking contradiction uh, in that it, you're a huge fan of stoicism, but you're also a neuroscientist. And you talk about leadership. What's the deal with stoicism in what you do for, for a living? Like, Talk to me about that. Well, I mean, a lot of what I do for a living is help leaders to build mental resilience, so to build their resilience to stress. And you know, I've got some, you like your fun facts. So I've got some fun facts around stress. Yeah. So the latest one I've heard is that 75% of people in the modern world are deficient in magnesium. And yep. we know that magnesium gets leached from your system when your cortisol levels are high. So levels of the stress hormone. And so I've done, you know, a few big conferences recently. And I say, raise your hand if you ever get that twitchy eyelid. And it's absolutely like at least 75% of people in the room raise their hand. So it'd be, really, it'd be interesting to know, like with your listeners, how many of them identify with that. So the twitchy eyelid is a classic sign of magnesium deficiency. I totally, I forgot about twitchy eyelids. Uh, I've been taking magnesium for 20 years, but I used, it used to bother the heck out of me. And it's totally, I never, of course it would make sense, but okay, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> All right, cool. Do you, do you not get them anymore at all? Or do you, no, no, I don't get them anymore. Yeah, you're taking enough magnesium. How do you take? I, how do you take your magnesium by orally or transdermally? Uh, I take it orally, usually unless I'm doing a float tank or something. Yeah. But uh, in, I think it was Headstrong, my book. I figured out there's a diurnal or circadian uh, spike in the middle of the day. So now I take my magnesium in the morning. So I have energy during the day and I take it at night for sleep. Mm. So I do about 1.6 grams a day in mixed mm. eight forms. Anything that ends in eight, I'll take. Yes. Like like three and eight or citrate or malate, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, How do you do it? I'm, I'm the same. So I 
if I'm if I'm not traveling too much because um, of the liquid issue, then I w- I'll try to take the spray or the lotion or the gel because it's best absorbed transdermally. Um, if that's just not convenient or I'm traveling, then I'll take a capsule or a tablet. And I take the bioactivated magnesium, um, which is just, you know, more available for your body. And I usually prefer to take it at night. But this morning, I actually took it in the morning. I, you know, I'm under a lot of pressure at the moment, traveling a lot. Um, so I am taking it twice a day at the moment as well, especially because I feel that or, uh, taking it orally isn't as good as taking it through your skin. Um, and yeah, I'd also do flotation tank and sometimes I'll just have a bath at home with magnesium flakes. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty easy to get Epsom salts, which are a source of magnesium. So yeah. it's not that hard to do that. No, yeah. um, it's just taking the time to have a bath, you know, like, cause then you've got to be in it yeah. for like 15 minutes to absorb it all. Right. It's, it's, when you're looking at building resilience, one of the things that leaders, especially of larger companies have to deal with is just, there's always a line of people who want to talk to you. Mm-hmm. And if you're oh, I'll just have a half hour bath mm-hmm. and then I'll, you know, lay back and I'll meditate for two hours. It's like, uh, how could you do all of that in one minute? Because that was all you had. <laughs> I know, but um, actually you're reminding me of, I have, um, uh, someone in my network who, um, I don't coach him, but he, he gives me lots of coaching clients. And I took him to flotation tank and it was an hour. And at the end of it, he said to me, I never take one hour for myself. And he's actually the person that um, reintroduced me to stoicism. And so I was just so blown away by the parallels between what neuro- modern neuroscience says about building resilience and what you know these stoics were saying so long ago. And it's kind of like, I mean, they must have had time machines or something because they're saying exactly the same thing that I'm saying. What does modern neuroscience say about stoicism? Um, So basically, well, what it says about resilience, which relates to stoicism, is that our ability to endure and bounce back from adversity is a capability that can be built into our brain. Um, And that there are certain factors that help to really incorporate that into our toolkit and because of things like the natural loss aversion of the brain we have to override that with a different form of thinking and you know so basically going back to stoicism if every time you encounter something that's not how you wanted it to be or it's difficult or you're suffering um, the ability to endure that we have that capability in our brain but psychologically we often think this is too much or I don't want to do it or it's unfair or why should this be happening to me? But actually, every time you endure adversity, you build your resilience to future adversity. You you build your own idea that you have the tools within you to come out better, stronger, learn something. And I just I just think the parallels are pretty amazing. But from the modern neuroscience point of view, it's about it's literally about building a pathway in your brain that helps you to reframe the way that you view enduring adversity. When you look at, say, addiction, though, uh, most addiction, at least the, a lot of people have been on the show like Joe Polish, uh, and, and I would say most addiction is tied to trauma, which is one of those times when you've endured something that was a little too much for you and it left a mark and you're working on dealing with that through all the behaviors of addicts how do you 
like how do you have stoicism and this, oh, you should endure lots of annoying things yeah. so you can get better at handling them versus, oh, I accidentally traumatized myself in the process. That is a tricky one, especially when it involves childhood trauma. Um, yeah. We know that there's a sort of fine balance between enduring a certain amount of trauma that inoculates you against future stress, it actually makes you more resilient, versus such horrendous trauma that you are, you know, damaged to the point of, of falling into an addiction, you know, later in your life or for the rest of your life. Um, so, you know, I, having been a psychiatrist and a former guys, I, I totally, un, I mean, you know, there are things that people have endured that no one should have to endure. And it's difficult to see how you can be stoic um, when something just well, you know, I think when someone really vulnerable, like a child or a really elderly person or an animal, is treated cruelly, that that's kind of beyond what we're talking about and, you know, can be really difficult to deal with. It can still be helped with the right psychotherapy in the right environment and, um, you know, some sort of understanding that the trauma has created something that there might be some ability through neuroplasticity to undo some of the effects of. But let's say we're talking about a, a minor or moderate amount of trauma at some stage of your life. Yeah. Um, something that you probably can handle. Something, Yeah, exactly. So then there's more of a fork in the road about whether that leads you towards a vice or a virtue. So from Freudian psychology, it was sort of like at different stages of your development, if something bad happens to you, then this is what's going to be wrong with you for the rest of your life. I'm more in the school of Erickson's psychology, which is that at different stages of your development, things can happen and it can either make you more resilient or it can make you more vulnerable. Um, so a lot of the people that I work with, senior leaders, have had a childhood disruption between the ages of five and nine. And that's actually yeah. led to them being more successful, perhaps, than they would have been. It's so common. Yeah. <laughs> now, you talked about Ericksonian psychology, which is awesome. And I've been wanting to ask someone about the Ericksonian stages of adult development. Are you familiar with those? Um, not off the top of my head, but... Um, ah, I was hoping I, was, I could just go there with you because I don't remember them off the top of my head either. But it, it's, it's just the idea that as, we, as we're kids, everyone knows, oh, there's these stages you go through and there's mm -hmm. things you do when you're six and things you do when you're nine and 12, et cetera, et cetera. But that as adults, there's stuff you go through in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s and your 50s that Eric... Erickson mapped out pretty nicely. Yeah. And I'm finding as I as I'm at least a third or maybe actually I just had my birthday which was my 26% birthday. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm maybe a quarter of the way towards figuring out all the stages of adult development but I'm starting to find that as I get older there's this thing called wisdom and you're like oh there's these patterns that adults do too they're just spaced out more than kids. Uh, do you think that's true? Like, do you see a leader who's in their 50s or 60s is a fundamentally different type of leader than someone who's in their 20s or 30s? I absolutely think there are those stages. And um, just in real summary, so not every single detail, um, early adulthood is about love. Mid-adulthood, 40 to 64, which I think you fall into, is about care. And maturity from 65 to death is about wisdom. And uh, the maturity. No, that can't that can't be me. I'm, no, no, I don't think you're there. Okay. Yet. You're not there yet. <laughs> um, I think it's useful for us as adults to look at those stages and kind of see if it resonates with us. that That's something that we're going through. I would definitely use information like that with the leaders that I'm working with. I mean, 
retirement ages, you know, it's, it's changing around the world. But most of um, the people I'm working with are not 65 plus. They're in the 40 to 64 category. Um, and it does start to become about leaving a legacy and doing something more than just making money. Um, so, yeah, I think there are definite themes there. And I think that if people look at Ericsson's stages through adult development, you're right, because, you know, the rest is about learning maybe why you are the way that you are because of what's happened in the past. But the work that I do is very much about, okay, let's see what we've got here. What can you become? You know, it's about neuroplasticity. So I think it's a great idea to look at those stages. So you've become a leader in your field. Did you have a disruption between five and 10 years old that drove you to become preeminent in your field? I would say that I did have a disruption at those ages. It's funny, I've never thought of it about myself, even though I've identified it as so many other people. Um, yeah, so I would say that I, I went through some challenges that were pretty traumatic, you know, or had some consequences. Um, and, and actually, what Erickson says is that a disruption at that age leads to either industry or inferiority, and industry is working hard. So, yeah, I definitely worked really hard at, at high school and university. I was at university for nine years. I did med school and a PhD. Um, yeah. And then I was a, you know, a, a junior doctor for seven years. And then I totally changed career and set up my own business. So I would say that I've definitely worked hard. Um, did you did you work hard because of inferiority? And so many people I've done work with who are successful they're they're so successful because they're kind of overcoming or counteracting that feeling of inferiority. Did you get both? Is that why you did it, or did you just do it for the love of the of the field? I I mean I I am so lucky that I found a field that I absolutely love, and you know having done my PhD in neuroscience over twenty five years ago, um, when it wasn't a sexy subject at all, I'm really yeah. pleased now that that it was. But I I genuinely was attracted to the neuro part of all of of medicine. Okay. Um, I think being the, the first child of first generation immigrant parents um, from an Indian heritage to the UK had placed a lot of expectation on me. Um, I think that drive to for perfection that I used to really struggle with was definitely to do with proving my value in the world as a woman as well. Um, I'd say that I'm pretty much over that now. I think once you get faculty at MIT, you're kind of like, yeah, I, I think I've probably done okay. Yeah, if someone wants to, to you know say bad things about you, you can just sort of laugh at them uh, and just be like, "We're all my engineering friends are going to hurt you," and then like they're afraid. I I totally get it. All those all those like thug, yeah. thugs at MIT, they'll just come and like beat you up. <laughs> they can use their slide rules. It's a problem. Uh, now, I interviewed Stephen Porges, the the father of polyvagal theory, uh, not so long ago on the show. Uh, one of my uh, favorite interviews. And he talked about how he had some sounds that he would use that would usually make people more parasympathetic. And he could use them in a room full of people in most countries. And people would have profound emotional experiences. But when he went to London to do it, uh, that they had to stop after two minutes because people were just having breakdowns. And he said, well, it's because in London, if you're a native Londoner for multiple generations, you have World War One and Two trauma that's become a part of the culture, part of you know, your lineage. And if you're not a native Londoner, you got kicked out of your country. 
<laughs> so you, you have the trauma of leaving your people and coming to a new place and reestablishing yourself. And that he just found that the percentage of people who had to deal with that from one side or the other in London was the highest he'd seen almost anywhere, even though he likes London. I, I love London. Uh, I was just there uh, last month, actually. Uh, but that that it's definitely true that, that there are people in London who are working to overcome either of those two things, either displacement or you know, the trauma of you know, potentially your, your city or your country falling. Uh, so it, it, do you think there's any validity to that? Um, as soon as you started speaking about it, I was thinking, you know, it's definitely stereotyped as a very repressed society. Um, but I'm a little bit surprised. I think it makes sense. But I'm a little bit surprised to hear that it's the only place that has that combination, because I think you could argue that, that there's something similar in the US and certainly in my work in South Africa of transgenerational trauma. He, he just might not have done one of those in South Africa. I mean, there's okay. a lot of places in the world that are pretty trashed. He yeah. just found that the percentage of it was high enough. When he does one of his events, he has like a, a whole bunch of therapist-type people in the room yeah. to help people who are, you hear some sound files and all of a sudden you're like, I have no idea what's going on, but I'm feeling weird. Uh, he just said it was an overwhelming number of people where they couldn't handle it uh, versus uh, normally it's uh, it's kind of, you can predict, oh, it's going to be a third of the people are going to you know need someone to hold their hand and just tell them it's all good. Just keep breathing. You'll be fine. Uh, so it was, Amazing. it was an interesting thing. That makes me feel a bit sad because obviously it's my hometown. But I have to say that when I was writing the book, which was obviously the year before this year um, and the year before that, I felt like, oh, my goodness, with what's going on in the world, this ability to understand how your brain works, draw on your own resources, relate to people in a different way is more needed than ever. Oh, it, it's super important. And I, the other thing I wanted to ask you, so your book is called The Source, The Secrets of the Universe, The Science of the Brain. Uh, do people ever accuse you of having a giant ego for disclosing the secrets of the universe in your book? No, you're the first person that's done that today. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I didn't do it. I was just wondering if other people did. Oh, now you've made me realize that probably everyone thinks that, but no one says no, it. It just makes you want to read the book more. I mean, I, I did read the book, but you know what I'm saying? Like, like it, it's a big claim, but okay, you've spent 25 years studying. Like, you've actually worked on this stuff, um, but it is a, a big thing to be, all right, like, I'm going to disclose this stuff because, you know, there's other books like Bhagavad Gita, Bible, you know, stuff like that that are written about the same sorts of things. Why did you say the secrets of the universe are in here? Well, I've actually referred to those books and philosophies that you've mentioned. Yeah. So I've kind of said that throughout time, in all different cultures, um, you know, including Stoicism, which we've spoken about a bit, there have been some belief sets, there have been some sort of understanding of human suffering or, um, you know, triumph over adversity um, that have kind of relied on blind faith just because they've been around for so long and they've been handed down more as stories than, you know, scientific facts. And so the, I, I know that it's a big claim, but what I was kind of trying to say was that all of that stuff, um, you can now put that together with with um, the results of modern science. And, and it comes back to how you started and you said to me, you're like a walking conflict. And I did feel like that for a long time. But when I felt able to, you know, I personally drew on both my cultural heritage and my medical and scientific background mm -hmm. to um, get through a sort of midlife crisis of my own. That's when I thought, actually, this stuff really goes together. It's not two totally separate things like I'd kept it in my childhood. And that's what made me want to write the book, because I thought everyone needs to know this. 
I was attracted to your book and to interviewing you because you have, I'm just going to say, hard to impeach credentials. Like, yeah, yeah, MIT, MD, you know, PhD. You're like, okay, you can say, I don't know what I'm talking about, but the people who know actually say I do. So there. Uh, but in your book, you're talking about visualization, the law of attraction, manifestation, oh, and neuroscience, uh, which is pretty unusual. In fact, it's a little bit of a professional risk to go there, isn't it? Did you think about that when you're writing the book? Yeah, I did. Um, I, okay. I did think about that. And what's been amazing, So, but, but I felt compelled to write that. So I, I couldn't not do it, even though I knew that it was a risk. And what's happened since the book has come out is that it's, it's just been, it's become something, the impact that it's had on me personally, the messages that I've got from people. And, and actually, the strongest message that I'm getting is thank goodness that somebody with your credentials has written about this. Yeah. Um, so it's turned out better than I could have imagined, but absolutely it has crossed my mind and still does that that was a risk. But you had built your resilience through stoicism and your other practices. So, like, if people criticize the book or me, like, they can, you know, they can go pound sand. What, what's the UK way of saying pound sand? I've never heard that before, so I'm not really sure. But I, I did a lot of work on grounding myself before the book came out. Um, okay. To prepare myself both for the criticism and potential criticism, of which there really hasn't been much at all, and the, you know, the potential reaction because. I get so many messages from people now that I don't know saying how it's changed their life. And that's, that's quite a thing to take on, to be honest. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, I people stop me in airports yeah. <laughs> saying similar things and, and it's, yeah, it is, it is a huge thing mm. to take on. Um, uh, and, and so I, I, I'm guessing most people listening don't quite know what that's like unless you change a friend's life or something like that. What happened the first time someone walked up to you said, I read, I read your book and it totally changed my life? Like, what did that do to you? So I have obviously been a medical doctor. So I've had the enormous privilege of knowing that I have saved many people's lives. Um, the first time after I became a coach that a client introduced me to someone and said she changed my life, I was a little taken aback. Um, so I would say that it's it's slowly built up over time because then after that, I would like, you know, ask my friends and family to try things and they would say that it had, you know, for example, to make a, an action board, which is like a vision board, but you actually do things to create the real world outcomes that you want. And I would get great feedback from them. They're people I know. So that, again, wasn't too astounding. But I would say that the messages that I've had from people, the photos of their vision boards, the photos of places that they've gone to that were on their vision board, the engagement rings, the weddings, the pregnancies, the starting a freelance business. When I get those messages from a stranger that says, I read your book or I listened to you on a podcast and then I did this and now this has happened. I just continually say to my husband, can you believe this? I can't believe this. And then it got to the point where I was saying, I can't believe this so much that I thought, well, you know, I need to believe it. And for some reason, it was okay when it was people that I knew, but it was just so overwhelming when it was complete strangers. And um, one of my really close friends, he's the husband of a, another close friend of mine, I was discussing it with him. And he said, you need to change your narrative from I can't believe it to I'm so grateful. And that has been just a massive game changer for me. So when I get these messages now, which I get on a daily basis on Instagram mostly, I look at them and I think, 
I'm so grateful that this person has reached out to me and that me writing that book has had this effect on them because I don't consider myself a writer. I find writing really difficult. I love speaking. Hopefully you can tell that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But the writing was, it was hard work and it took me away from my family every weekend for a year. Um, And actually it's, it's drawn us much closer together and um, it's, it's been really a wonderful, exciting journey for us, but you know, it was really hard work and I didn't know what the outcome would be like. So I'm still just, you know, it takes my breath away when I get these messages, but I've turned that into an opportunity to be grateful. And so that's having, you know, an even more compounded effect on me. I really like how you uh, you took away the, the can't word uh, because you are believing it, but you tell yourself you can't. It creates a little conflict in there mm-hmm. and turn to gratitude. I, I do the same thing. If someone tells me, like, thank you for telling me because I else what I know. And, and it, it is overwhelming uh, when it when it first starts, at least it was for me. Uh, Now, you talked about visualization, about vision boards, and talk to me about the the neuroscience of visualization, let's say. Like, what's actually going on in there? Okay, so um, because we're bombarded with so much information through all of our senses, um, but massively through the visual sense um, on a daily basis, the brain has a natural filtering process. Um, so things that aren't regarded as you know crucial to our survival, they kind of get filtered out. A little bit like you're not aware of the clothes on your body all day. Um, and then the information that is filtered, that we pay attention to, is then tagged in order of importance. So those processes in neuroscience are called selective filtering, selective attention, and value tagging. And the tagging has a logical and an emotional element. So there would be some things that, you know, that it's based on facts and data that this is important to my survival. And then there'll be some things that are just important to you because of nostalgia or family or whatever other reasons. Um, so visualization or, and vision boards, I put them in the similar category for these processes, are ways of priming your brain to notice and grasp opportunities that might otherwise have passed you by. Because when we're trying to hold down the day job, put food on the table, pay the bills, have some kind of work-life balance, aren't necessarily thinking about what does my ideal life look like or what would I you know, really like to be doing or where would I like to be living in five years' time. So the taking time to step back and visualize how you'd like your life to look, actually physically creating this on a vision board that, that you then act upon just brings to the front of your mind, it raises from non-conscious to conscious what it is that you really want. And so you're much more likely to notice something that's related to that as you're rushing around your daily life. Um, let me ask you something, Dave. I, you obviously didn't reveal what your last birthday was, but I'm going to take a guess that you played Tetris on a on your Game Boy when you were younger. Uh, you know, I appreciate that you think I'm as young as you think <laughs> I am. I played Pong. Okay, I've, I've been totally wrong. Obviously, that, that <laughs> resilient aging stuff works. That's amazing. <laughs> um, For people who are listening who don't know what Pong is, it's the first video game you could buy at your house. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, I'm, I'm in the age group that doesn't know what Pong is, so there's obviously a big difference. Um, so you just said I was old or wise, one of the two. You're definitely wise <laughs> and you look amazing, okay? Oh, thank you. <laughs> um so basically, people who did play Tetris 
they will definitely remember that when you closed your eyes at night to go to sleep after playing Tetris intensely, you could see the little bricks falling in front of your eyes. And I think it happened happened to me in college when I got Tetris. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's actually become a psychological phenomenon called the Tetris effect. So how that gets applied in real life is that in the hypnagogic state of falling asleep, so from going from waking to being asleep, we're highly suggestible. So I actually keep my vision board right next to my bed where I can see it. So I see it first thing every morning and I see it last thing at night. Um, You don't have to do that. I think it's very practical to make it the screensaver on your phone or have it, some people don't want it out in public, so then it could be on the inside of a wardrobe door or something like that. Um, But the more you look at it, and the more you visualize everything on it coming true, and you notice things in the real world that can help you to make it come true, and you try to make progress you know, against those milestones every single day, it's just so much more likely that those things will come into your life than if you are too busy to ever think about what you really want. Or if you just fantasize about how different you'd like your life to be, but you sit on the couch and you don't really do anything. From a neuroscience perspective, though, you're sort of saying just because you're you're filtering this, I, you're filtering for these things because you see them all the time. Does that make them manifest? It makes you more likely to notice them, for sure. Um, so they were happening all the time. You just didn't notice because you didn't program your filters to pay attention to them. It's possible that you were missing things that were available for you to notice and you know opportunities that were there for you to take but I think the act of stepping back creating this vision um it it actually you know it's a whole different thing like there are research studies that show that women who've lost their teeth have much better health and lower stress levels than women that don't it's not because they've lost their teeth although that is good for you but it's because they are taking the time and the effort to look after themselves to such a level that it's likely that they're doing a lot of other things that improve their health and their longevity and reduce their stress levels. So I think the next stage, which relates back to something that you said earlier, which was you talk about, you know, these ancient philosophies, laws of attraction, vision boards, oh, and neuroscience, um, is that the phrase that really, I think, encapsulates all of that sort of new age thinking is the way that you think determines your life. Now, the reason that that has received criticism for being pseudoscience is that it's always been based on quantum physics. And I've always secretly thought for years before I wrote the book that if the way that you think can determine your life, that philosophy should be based on cognitive science, like psychology and neuroscience. And again, that was one of the reasons that I felt that I was in a good position to write that book that bases that on on neuroscience. So... The manifestation part, so there's visualization and then there's manifestation. The manifestation part depends more upon what I call brain agility, which is a combination of mastering your emotions, understanding your brain-body connection, accessing your intuition, and we've already talked about how part of that is looking after the health of your gut, making good decisions because you are essentially the sum of every decision that you've made in your life, staying motivated and resilient to reach your goals, and then using your fully integrated brain power to create the real world outcomes that you want. So we talked about hard work. I consider hard work to be building up all those pathways and capabilities in your brain, and then really putting out there what it is that you want to achieve, and doing everything you can to make that happen. 
that's manifesting. It's not magic. It's, it's working hard. It's taking a risk. It's pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, but using your brain power to make your chances of success as high as possible. Now you've moved it from the quantum realm, which is like the most overused new age marketing term ever into the thinking cognitive science realm. But do you actually think it's quantum or do you, you just did that for marketing or do you think it's actually all about thoughts? Oh, I think it's actually all about thoughts. I mean, as you know, yeah, I went to okay. medical school when I was 18. I did a PhD in neuroscience. I was a psychiatrist for seven years. I've been an executive coach for 12 years. It's all about thoughts. Um, and it's all about the power of your brain, particularly the untapped potential of your brain. So we're super aligned on the untapped potential of the brain. There's so much cool stuff going on in there. Um, I also... I mean, I, I spent uh, last weekend uh, with you know, Jack Canfield. You talk about the law of attraction in your book. You know, the, mm. these are he's one of the the many people behind the secret. And there's the old Napoleon Hill stuff. Mm. And I've I've kind of had an aversion to the whole quantum thing. But you can look at quantum biology, <laughs> which is you know a real field. There's probably someone at MIT studying quantum biology, which is. You know, how does an enzyme actually work inside a cell? And it turns out there's a quantum tunneling effect that allows them to achieve chemical reactions with less energy than they should take. Like this is real science uh, that's looking at microtubules and cells, not the kind of the quant. Oh, you know, before we would have called it angels. Now we're just going to call it quantum and then we can remarket uh, visualization. Um I, I'm starting to believe that there's some quantum level effects that we just seriously don't understand in biology that may be involved in consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've interviewed a few people about that. In fact, I'm about to talk to Dawson Church again, who's a you know, cell biologist like Bruce Lipton. Bruce is considered the father of epigenetics, and mm. he's one of the first guys to clone a cell, like a real scientist who's gone, I'm going to call him super quantum. Uh, so I, I feel like there might be something going on there. Or are you 100% convinced this is a, a thought-based process and that that quantum stuff is mostly marketing garbage? Well, this is, you're, you're, you're introducing an interesting conflict or dilemma here, which is both that we've already touched upon the fact that some of my personal beliefs throughout my life weren't backed up by science and that created conflict for me. Some of those beliefs have, since the 70s, been proved by science. So I, I do have you know, a secret secretly, I believe a lot more of that stuff than I can prove by science at the moment. I have a little phrase in my mind, which has always been science fiction is just science that hasn't been proven yet. I'm a great believer in people watching Black Mirror or movies, you know, like The Matrix or Blade Runner to prepare themselves for the future. Um, I think it's interesting how so many physicists and people like Bruce Lipton and myself have gone from being very um, physiological, biological scientists to entering into that more intangible realm. And it, of course, depends upon whether you believe that thoughts are emergent from chemical processes or whether it's a two way thing or you don't believe that at all. So I like to leave a little bit of room for magic that we can't explain everything at the moment. Um, we don't know what's going to be proven to be correct that we don't believe to be correct at the moment. That's happened many times in neuroscience that the way we thought things worked in the brain turned out to be different to what we thought. And, and so I think that whole process of evolving and challenging your beliefs and embracing new ideas 
is really important. So absolutely, I'm I'm open to that for the moment. I think my niche is to be able to um, represent based on current modern scientific thinking how some of those things like the laws of attraction, manifestation, visualization could actually help us to have a slightly better life than the one that we have at the moment. Uh, that was a, a super good hedge. I, uh, <laughs> I, I like that. <laughs> it, 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 and it's, a, it's actually a, a rational and a, and a reasonable thing to do. Um, as a, a clinician, when you were an MD, you actually treated patients. And if a, a scientifically proven study uh, came out with double-blind, placebo-controlled stuff, and you did it in 100 patients, and most of them didn't get better, would you keep doing it? No, because one study... But, sci- but it's scientifically proven. But it's one study, and it's 100 people. <laughs> right. And so the clinical observation side of, of scientifically proven is one of the seven kinds of evidence that's out there. Um, I look at the... The scientific method is you make an observation, you uh, then make a hypothesis around it, and then you test it. And the levels of evidence to support the test are are multiple, and some are stronger than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I look at that, that quantum side of things. We've all observed there's some weird stuff going on there, and no one knows what's going on. We're making all sorts of interesting uh, observations, and now we're hypothesizing about it, and we're testing it. And those tests are going to tell us over the next couple of years, uh, less years than it normally would take because we have better data analysis abilities, but we'll, they'll tell us, okay, does visualization work? I, I think the evidence is actually in on that, mm. but what kind of visual, visualization works in less time and, uh, and things like that. I, I'm looking to you <laughs> to say, you know, I noticed that when people visualize this way with the board, it works better than uh, thinking about it and making it up in their mind. And if they do it in the morning versus at night, it works better or whatever else it is. That's where I hope it's going. Do you think we're going in that direction or is it going to go somewhere else? No, I think we are going in that direction. And in, in the book, I've, the last four chapters are practical and there's an, an entire chapter on how to make your action board, where to place it, when to look at it, you know, how to uh, compartmentalize it or not. Um, and then and at the beginning of the book, there's a chapter on the theory of why it works, some of which we've discussed. So, um, and because I've been doing vision or action boards for 10 years, now my friends ask me to help them with this because there are some things about where you place things and, you know, whether the, everything touches each other or there's space between them and things like that that seem to matter. And going back to medicine, and I'll bring up my brain agility model again, I did not make all of my life or death decisions for a patient based on logic. I I made them also based on intuition. And yeah, yeah, so I think that, yes, there are hundreds of studies, but there are studies that prove one thing one day and the opposite thing the next day. So (laughs) (laughs) um, it's the clinical experience of seeing people, hearing your colleagues' experiences, and just all of that training, that nine years at university, sometimes it does come down to what your gut tells you. And Whenever, you know, because obviously now I feel very responsible for my family's health because they look to me to make their big, important decisions about health. If I struggle with that because it's such a big responsibility for somebody else's life, it's fine if it's yours. I always come back to the do no harm. That is the most basic promise that I took when I become a doctor, became a doctor. Um, and, and that's what I always go back to. And I just, um, you know, I equally use my understanding of what's going emotionally for people, my logical decision-making, what the motivators and demotivators are. But 
I've learned to massively rely on my intuition um, over the last at least 10 years, um, which of course is based on logical wisdom and experience that's been picked up in life. But yeah, I 100% agree with you. There's something bigger out there that we don't know about. Um, and that's a good thing, because if what we know now is everything that there is, I, that's a little sad, actually. <laughs> I, I love that you said that. I was going to say, that would suck. But yeah, <laughs> it, 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 is, it, it is sad. Is intuition something you can train? So my line on that as a neuroscientist and a you know massive believer in neuroplasticity is that you can train intuition in exactly the same physiological process that you would learn a new language. So, and, and I actually think that journaling is the best way to access and notice what your intuition does and doesn't do and how much you listen to it and what happens when you don't listen to it. And so for me, reading back over six months of my journal, I could see how I was making my decisions and how I was doubting things, but not acting on them. And it just really made it very clear to me in my own handwriting that, that you know, we all really undervalue our intuition. We don't listen to that inner voice as much as we should. So the, pr the process of building any sustainable behavior change is raising from non-conscious to conscious that it's something that you need to work on, focusing attention on opportunities to try it out, Having a new desired behavior that you wish to try, that you deliberately practice and repeat until that becomes the default pathway in your brain and some form of accountability for, you know, you to say in six months time, yes, I've learned Spanish well enough to go on vacation to Latin America or I've, you know, I've, I've accessed my intuition well enough to know that the next time I have re a really big, important decision to make, I can trust that inner voice as well as much as I trust my logic. Very, uh, very well said. I appreciate that perspective. Now we have time for one more question in this interview. And you've written in your book uh, several times about uh, aging and the perspective on aging and how you can change, uh, change even the way you age with the way you envision things. How long do you think you're going to live? That's interesting because obviously I've heard you speak about this before and I personally, for me, it's about quality of life rather than how long I'm going to live. And of course, and yeah. you know, given the sort of growing dementia crisis and the mental health crisis, I would say that as long as I've got all my mental faculties and I'm reasonably happy and I've got positive social, you know, like social relationships, that the num the number isn't a thing for me. But I I've always been quite philosophical like that. Maybe. It's because, you know, in Indian culture, the elderly are massively revered. So I've never had a fear of aging. Um, and also because we believe in reincarnation. So I don't I don't believe that that's the end anyway. Um, so, uh, you know. I've so you're an MIT neuroscientist, MD, and you believe in reincarnation, but you're skeptical of the quantum realms? <laughs> you know what? You're right. I'm a conflict <laughs> and I'm okay with that. <laughs> By the way, none of that was criticism. I'm I'm with you there. Uh, reincarnation sure reduces stress, whether it's it's true or not. Yeah. If you believe that you get to you get game over the next time, if you do it wrong this time, you'll probably sleep better at night. Yeah, I, I do think that's. I honestly do think that's true because, like, you know, that was a pretty much an indoctrinated belief from from my childhood, and actually, I'm like, I'm going to keep that one because it makes me feel a lot better about everything. 
I think seriously, everyone should just adopt the idea that reincarnation is real. And it doesn't matter if it is or not, because your your life, if it's the only life you have now, uh, will be better as a result of believing that, uh, because you'll be less stressed and you'll probably take better care of the world, whether it's for a future generation or for when you come back and have to, you know, walk through the mess you made in your last life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I mean, if you if you live according to karma, you do actually live differently um, than yeah. if you think think that that's the end. And just for the record, I don't not believe in quantum biology. I just don't think it's the science that should explain things that are to do with the way that you think. I think that cognitive science is the science that should explain that. I I, I appreciate that clarification. Yeah, you you never said uh, to be really clear. You never said you didn't believe in quantum biology because it's a real hard yeah, science. Exactly. Um, you're just saying that that whether quantum effects are making visualization real versus the brain and the thinking stuff uh, that you're more on the side of the brain and it's a reasonable uh, place to be especially when you're open to the other stuff happening as well uh, and given that you've studied it for 25 years i think you've got a pretty solid uh, solid reason to say this is where i'm coming from uh, and which is why i want to interview you but you know uh, what Tara, i also think that because there are so many people in modern society that believe that logic is like the main way of thinking and being that it's reassuring for more people to hear some empirical science as well. There, if you know, because if you believe in, in all of those things, laws of attraction, manifestation anyway, like I do and you do, you don't, maybe don't need more than that. But if you do need more, then here is more. Here is some modern science. Here are some brain scans. Here are some research studies. And I just want more people to have access to that belief in their brain potential through these simple practical tools. So thank you so much for having me on the show because you've helped me to tick that off on my vision board, Dave. Oh, <laughs> beautiful. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for a fascinating interview. Uh, your book is called The Source. Your website's uh, taraswart.com. And probably the best way to get in touch with you is Instagram and your Dr. Tara Swart on Instagram, right? Yeah, that's right. DRTAR as well. Yeah. Excellent. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much, Dave. It was brilliant. If you liked today's interview, you know what to do. You should plug yourself into the source and download a new personality or all the other cool stuff. By the way, that's not in the book, but you should read the book anyway. It's called The Source and it's available anywhere you can buy books. And if you haven't read Superhuman yet and you were to buy The Source and Superhuman at the same time on your favorite online platform to buy books, you might find that then they'd be paired together and all sorts of people could get upgraded, live to 180, and be more conscious and have cooler vision boards all at the same time. <laughs> Enjoy your day. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. 
Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.